I continue to be amazed by by the amazing talent that we find to bring on the Ortho Show. Uh, this week, we're bringing you Asif Ilyas, who is an orthopedic surgeon out of Rothman in, in Philadelphia. He's the youngest you know, track for full-time professor at Jefferson. He he takes care of all the pro sports teams for hand and upper extremity for as, as a consultant. He runs the fellowship program. He just started the Opioid Foundation for Rothman, which is going to educate on prevention and and alternative options. I mean, it's just spectacular the amount of work and energy that this man is doing in forwarding the space of orthopedics and really making it really that much better for all of us to be able to care for our patients. So I hope you like it as much as I do. We continue to thank our sponsor, OrthoLaser Orthopedic Laser Centers. They continue to offer MLS M8 technology for chronic and acute orthopedic pain as an alternative source to opioids and possibly even avoiding surgery. The franchises continue to spread across the country. It's an amazing opportunity for orthopedic surgeons and doctors and even medical device reps to become part of the growing technology. OrthoLaser Milwaukee and OrthoLaser Rochester just opened. We have another five in the queue. Come and join the OrthoLaser franchise family. Hashtag follow the fro. From medical media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello, world. Who's ready for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast? This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, host of the Ortho Show, uh, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world. Today is no exception. I'm really excited uh, to introduce Dr. Asif uh, Ilyas, who has so much common ground with me, yet uh, uh, still so many differences. He has an amazing story. We're really excited to have him on board. He's an orthopedic surgeon from the Rothman Institute. He's a full professor of orthopedics at Jefferson Medical School. He's the uh, uh, immediate past president of the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society, director of the Hand and Upper Extremity Fellowship at Rothman, consultant for the 76ers, 76ers and the Eagles, founder of the Rothman Opioid Institute Foundation for Opioid Research, and a board member of the Rothman Institute. This man has no moss on him. It is a pleasure to have you on us. If we can't thank you enough. Scott, it's a pleasure. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, we've had some great guests on the show. We're really on a roll here, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to you really about a lot of the topics that we share uh, common ground. But we always like to sort of start from the beginning because I think you have a really interesting sort of college medical school story. So, you know, for me, it was 10th grade. I just sort of looked around and I said, you know, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist. What was your draw to medicine? Because you decided early on that was what your career was going to be. Yeah, no, I, I definitely decided early on uh, to go to uh, uh, to be a doc, uh, very much so. And um, it's something I just kind of latched on to early. I don't think I can really, other than maybe a construction worker, I've thought about any other kind of career for myself. But that being said, I really I didn't even know what an orthopedic surgeon was um till late in medical school, frankly, I came to medical school wanting to be an internist. That was my kind of vision of what I was going to be. Um, I was going to be in uh, working some, you know, brownstone in the community where I'd see patients downstairs and I would live upstairs. Almost uh, Cosby-esque is kind of my vision of what I would be doing. 
uh, despite the issues with Cosby. Now, nonetheless, um, that was kind of what I thought of, of my future. And, it w- you know, orthopedics was not on my radar until much later in my medical education. Were your parents doctors? I mean, what was the desire early on? No, my, my parents were not doctors. Uh, I, I had a grandfather who was a physician, and, and he was a source of inspiration for me. Um, and one of the things that drew me, although I didn't know him uh, as well as I would have liked, um, just kind of how he was kind of held in, in such high regard within the family and the field of, of medicine was just held in such high regard. And some of the more influential people in our professional lives and personal lives uh, growing up were in medicine. Uh, it just seemed like a, a field where really folks who are both bright and are committed to, you know, uh, serving and, and also uh, want to be relevant uh, would go into I mean, it's interesting. Other than our most recent guest, Jorge Chala, who who was educated in Argentina where there is no college, and basically you just go directly to medical school, you chose a very direct path. You were accepted into a college medical school program combination. So literally from high school graduation, you knew that you were going to be a doctor. I'd love to hear about that program and, and what your thoughts were through that process. Yeah, no, I, I don't get that question that often, so thanks for asking. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, my I stumbled upon these programs, um, we, we call them um, BSMD or BAMD programs, early admission programs, um, while in high school because, I, uh, you know, I had the advantage of knowing that I wanted to go to medical school. And, I, and, these, and, and this is like, now we're talking like late 80s, right, early 90s. It's not like you can get on the internet and find these things. There's no internet back then. So I actually stumbled upon it because we met someone who had done a program like that and uh, who was a few years ahead of me, and I was intrigued by this. They actually, ironically, were doing the Penn State Jefferson program, um, which ironically, I'm now affiliated with Jefferson. That's where where I'm on on faculty now. And that's how I stumbled upon it. I started kind of asking around. And, you know, back then, you got to do the old-fashioned way. You got to knock on doors, you know, make phone calls. And uh, I stumbled upon these programs. There's actually several of them where you can apply to these programs on a high school. And if I admit it, you, you, are, you go to both undergrad and the host school, host university, and then you go straight on to, to medical school. And there's various requirements in terms of what you have to maintain. But the beauty of it is, is that you kind of know from the beginning you're going to be a doc. And uh, it kind of takes some of the stress off during college. Although you still have to perform of, you know, of delivering and, and competing in the traditional manner. And ironically, um, I, I applied to several, got into several, but the one I didn't get into was the Penn State Jefferson one. <laughs> so uh, ironically, I did not get into that one, but somehow I found myself at Jefferson one way or the other later on. Yeah, you made you came full circle. I mean, for the listeners, I want everybody to know it's not like you could, you know, get into one of these programs and like hang out at the college pub and like just just barely pass. I mean, you got to do well in your college uh, curriculum as you advance, and then you'll you'll maintain your your spot in medical school. BU, I think, was one of the programs that had something like when I was applying, I was that was eighty six or so, pretty much around you know very similar times. And you're right, the internet really didn't get going until nineteen ninety five. So for all those young listeners out there, just to think that the internet was been there forever. Ever, uh, Ira Kirschbaum, one of our great guests, sort of explained that for us as well. All right, so now we got to fast forward here a little bit. So you, you do well in medical school, and, you, and and there's a pivot, and you decide that you know orthopedics is is what you're going to do. So you go to your orthopedic residency at that point. You're you're going along, and how did hand surgery become the 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 path for you? At what point did you feel like that was your mission? Well, I think you know. Um... 
there's this concept called mentorship, right? And it's it's a topic that if you add asked me, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I I didn't know what it really was. It's just a word. Um, but now, kind of in my space today of of, of teaching and, and leading organizations, I really understand this concept of mentorship and so much of of what specialties we go into. And I'm Scott. I'm sure you've had a similar experience. It's really based on our mentors, folks that uh, we identify with, folks who we look up to, folks who have um, you know helped cultivate us. You know, the, if you look up the word mentorship, it's a mentor is someone who uh, guides, directs, advances someone junior to them. Uh, and, and gets nothing in return. Uh, so, for for example, people say, "Oh, well, teachers are mentors," and they can be, but not necessarily because you know, teachers and professors are paid to to do that. But it's those that really take you under their wing and and or um, you know and and inspire you in a certain way. So. That's a long answer for, um, you know, my, some of my best mentors were in hand surgery, uh, amongst them, Joe Thoder, Chai Mudgold, Jesse Jupiter, Sangley, just some really uh, great Scott Coes and really great folks who I had the pleasure of working with and, again, inspired me and, and folks that I wanted to be like. In, in residency, I, you know, I, I knew right away that the high on my list was orthotrauma, hand and spine, and ultimately came down to trauma in hand. I still do a lot of trauma today on a full-time you know, basis, um, but I, I definitely committed to the hand surgeons, especially in fellowship training. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. And, and we hear that a lot. And what always really seems to come full circle is we appreciate so much the, the, the mentors for us, and then we become mentors ourselves, as, as you clearly are as a fellowship director and how much education that you provide for residents and fellows. And so we have something a little bit in common. When did you do your Mass General Fellowship with uh, Jesse Jupiter, which is interesting because it really was trauma and hand, but what year were you there? Uh, um, oh, oh 05, oh 06, I believe. Yeah, so we're, we're about 10 years apart. So, so at the Tufts program... Uh, they would pick one resident a year to go over and spend six months at Mass General. And we would sort of, we would, we would latch onto the chief resident who was running the trauma service, but we really were there, you know, for Jesse Jupiter. And so, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Jesse, Jesse's become a good, is a good friend of mine. And he's a, one of the most interesting, you know, men on the planet. And I'll, I'll never forget it. I, 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 so I got fired the first day I was there. I was so excited. I'm a mass general. This is awesome. I would do all this great trauma. And the chief resident calls me in to do this pelvis X fix. And I'm like, I've never done one of those. This is going to be great. And then I, I finished the case and Jesse calls me in into the office. He's like, you're here for me. You missed a carpal tunnel surgery. I'm calling Michael Goldberg. You are fired. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Right. Now- I mean, you know, the chief resident pulls me aside and he says, don't worry about it. You know, they fire everybody on the first day. He's <laughs> like, just sit, go over there in the corner and just ignore it. We'll see if he calms down by tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's so many little nuances about that. I mean, so just two things. Like, If I, if I look at my, my, my big mentors, there are folks who are both hand surgeons, but also embraced orthopedics, em, embraced orthotrauma. And that's something that I've done. I, I'm a bit of anomaly in that I do orthotrauma in addition to hand surgery. And most hand surgeons just do hand and upper extremity. But I, it's always been my first love. And and the and the docs I've gravitated to in my training felt the same way. Um, you know, my chairman in orthopedics, Joe Thoder, if, if he was, he's a phenomenal hand surgeon, but if you said, I got to put on a, a tibial plateau and, or an ankle fracture, or, or could you frame, you know, a pelvis, he, he wouldn't even, he wouldn't blink. It wouldn't, it wouldn't phase him. And, and that kind of, that style of, 
do what needs to be done. Don't be intimidated by, you know, the work and, you know, just know the principles and be confident in yourself. That was really, um, you know, what I, what I really uh, was impressed with and, and have tried to, you know, also uh, copy, if you will. And then Mass General, let me tell you, you know, going from Temple, which is a great, what I call a blue collar program, just an awesome program, but it's a, it's a roll up your sleeves, get the work done, no frills uh, kind of program to Mass General. They couldn't be more different. And I think for me, it was they're both very influential because they're both very complementary in terms of the different types of experiences. And National is very intimidating, as you know. I mean, I was extremely intimidated when I first got there. And I remember, first of all, I didn't feel like I was really qualified to be there, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think I, I really belonged there. I definitely didn't fit in with all the other Ivy Leaguers there. And uh, that was the first thing. And the second thing, just that the folks that walked those halls, I remember M&M conference. Uh, my first one, you just wanted to hide in a corner or under under a chair. I don't even know how these docs with these enormous, you know, uh, you know, accomplishments and egos would sit in a room together, and you just did not want to be called on any issue whatsoever. It was unbelievable. <laughs> You're so right. And like, I don't know if Henry Mankin was still around at the time. He was. We'd have Mankin breakfast, you know, and I remember just being in there. And these Harvard residents, these guys, I mean, they knew it, like if he calls and you better know the literature inside now and, and they would quote these studies and like, and I'm like, I, you know, I don't know any of that stuff, but I could tell that can put on an X fix right now. It was, it was really, it was a lot of fun. It was a great six months of my life. And uh, you know, it was really amazingly educational. Do Have you kept in touch with Ramin Modaber at all by any chance? Ramin mm-hmm. Probably about seven years in front of you, eight years in front yes. of you. Yes. I mean, we're not contemporaries in the traditional sense, but we're definitely in touch. Yeah, he's a dear friend of mine. So, uh, again, he's a, a master. So we, we always like to throw out names when we can. We're name droppers on this program, <laughs> for sure. All right, so, dude, you're full speed ahead. All right, you're like, all right, I'm going to medical school. Right out of high school, you've got this great plan. And you have been on a mission. I mean, it's really impressive uh, what you've done here. You're a full professor at Jefferson in 10 years, which is like – unheard of. Maybe Bill Levine uh, at Columbia, maybe on that same track. You've got 150 published articles. You're the youngest you know, partner and board member at Rothman, which is really remarkable. That Rothman program is literally one of, the, one of the greatest in the country. I mean, you have amazing drive. And so where does that come from? Why is there such a desire to do so much with the time that you have? I don't know, Scott. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think it's a bit uh, about how I'm wired. You know, I always, um, when people ask me about the Rothman Institute, which is frankly an amazing place, I tell them uh, it's the island of misfit kids in that you take all of these really bright type A overachieving folks and put them in one place together and where it's normal to overachieve. And uh, that's then you get the product that's the Rothman Institute. I, I don't know what it is, but I've always you know, try to do the best I can and excel and, 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 and uh, try to make a difference ultimately. All right, man. So let's just move ahead here. You're, you're accomplishing so much. And then all of a sudden in 2019, you decide that you want to go get an executive MBA at Brown while you're serving as the president of the Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society. I mean, that had to have been a lot of work. No, it was challenging. It was not the way that I had planned uh, to do this because um, I decided to do an executive MBA. And around that time, I was nominated uh, to uh, uh, join the um, presidential line of the Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society. So that's a four-year commitment. Um, so I actually then 
my first year into the presidential line, I got into the executive MBA program. Then I, I kept deferring it. Uh, I deferred it two times because um, I wanted to complete my term. And then the third deferral, they said, you can't defer it anymore without reapplying. Uh, and I was like, well, I guess I should just, I guess just do it at this point. And it just so happened that it, it had crossed with my, my last year on the, on the presidential line. So, you know, I, I, I highly uh, discourage anyone trying to do that. That's not a smart uh, thing to try to balance to kind of major, you know, extra, uh, extra clinical um, pursuits like that. It just was the dynamics in play, but uh, it worked out ultimately, but I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend it. You got it done. And we're all about family on this show too. So I got to throw one more thing out that you did that year. If I'm not mistaken, there was a flag football championship in there too. Yeah. I, I don't know where you caught that, but that's great. But uh, I, um, no, I, I coached my son's, uh, my youngest son's flag football team for three years. And uh, the first year we had kind of a lousy year and the, the last year he, he was quarterback for a team in the last two years, we, we actually won the league championship here. It's uh, NFL flag football out in the Philly suburbs. So um, it just so happened that I, part of the executive MBA is to go to be overseas. So I spent some of the time in Madrid and some of the time, some of the time in Cape Town, South Africa. So I actually flew back on the weekends to 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 keep uh, keep going with the team because just a I mean I wanted to but b we were we we're on a pretty good run. Uh, so and th- you're not going to get those you're not going to get those experiences back if you miss them. Yeah, family first. And, and and I think probably also you had to provide security. I mean, I think of NFL football in Philadelphia and it's like dangerous, man. Those fans are really <laughs> difficult, man. You got to protect your son on the sideline. All right. So we're going to move on. I mean, that was great. So, you know, one of the things that that we share uh, and I'm going to call you this, I'm going to call you an Avenger superhero of opioid. I mean, you, uh, along with me and, and a number of others, were very early adopters in the process of trying to to move away from opioids, which are so highly addictive and the harms that they've created to our society. Uh, and, you know, one of your studies, we'll talk about a couple of your studies, but I, I actually think I did the study, which is your carpal tunnel study for opioids. I've, I've used your line on that study so many times in my talks. I feel like I was the one that actually did the study, but no, we'll give you full You're credit. more than welcome to, by the way. You're more than welcome. You can, I, you can definitely add yourself as a co-author. It's fine. Honor, honorary. Honorary co-author. I love it. I need as many papers as I can. I'm only up to like seven. But uh, <laughs> no, so so tell me where where did the where did it come from? I mean, I know my story, but it's a, uh, you know, there had to you, a light went on at one moment in your career where you're like, we need to change what we've been taught because what we're doing right now doesn't work. And what was that moment for you? Yeah, you know, I think it was a confluence of, of two or three things, Scott. Um, and first of all, just thanks for the work you're doing. You know, the more attention that can be um, brought to this issue, the more we can kind of impart some positive change. Um, and, you know, it, for me, it was a few things. One is was from a personal professional basis. I mean, I came across some patients who had real opioid addiction problems. I can even give you a story of one that really stuck with me early on, you know, uh, where someone succumbed to uh, opioids and ultimately died of an overdose from, I assume, a, a prescription that I had given them initially that uh, sensitized them. And I'll just, I'll just say the story really fast. I had a, a patient who was a college student who had a, a wrist fracture that I repaired, and very uneventful post-operative course. You know, not even using necessarily any, anything out of the ordinary in terms of opioids. And I didn't. I know once patients recovered, I didn't see them again. I saw their mom for an unrelated problem, and I just asked them, "Hey, how was how's you know my my former patient?" And she just said, matter of fact, he died of an opioid overdose. And, um, you know, and she kind of implied like it started, you know, she was being nice to not 
not incriminate me, but it was quite frankly, it was very evident that that's where the process started. And that really kind of, you know, brought it to, brought it home for me that, you know, we ha- we have to be really careful with what we're doing. And, you know, when it comes to when it comes to orthopedic research, so much of what we do and, and just the other side of this from a from a from an academic and research point of view, so much of the research we do in orthopedics is so incremental. Like if, I know you read the literature and, and you'll read, well, this is 0.2% better here or 0.4% better there. Just really minor. You might get 1.2 years more longevity of this implant. And really it's not things that move the meter. But when it comes to pain management and opiates, we can really change the way people experience uh, um the post-operative pain, post-injury pain, and also influence, you know, how they live uh, and hopefully in a safe way. Not only just them, uh, well beyond everyone that they touch with. And one thing I know you know very well is this concept of diversion. We have to be very cognizant of whatever we do, whenever we prescribe opioids, which we all do, right? Just the nature of orthopedics, we still do. Even those of us who are on the front line trying to do research to minimize it, we still write for opioids all the time. When we're writing for these opioids, it's not just the patient that we're sen- uh, sensitizing to it and potentially, you know, um, sending them down a path where they may, you know, become addicted to them. It's just anyone they're in contact with, you know, and that's that constant diversion. So if I give someone 20 opioids, it's not just that they may use it and then get hooked on them, but anyone around them could too. So it was a combination of, of those personal experiences and then realizing there's real meaningful research we can do to kind of change the way that we're doing stuff to actually impart real positive change on society broadly, not just from simply an orthopedic perspective. Yeah, you know, one of the quotes, one of the statistics I like to quote is from the CDC, it was from, from last year, and I, always, I use the numbers 6, 13, and 30. So it doesn't seem like much of a big deal. Maybe you're going to write for a prescription of opioids after surgery. We know it hurts. We're supposed to make sure our patients are out of pain. We have all these great opioid alternatives now, but 6, 13, and 30, if you write a prescription to 100 patients for a 24-hour prescription of opioids, 6 out of 100 may still be on opioids at one year. If you write a 10-day course of opioids uh, to 100 people, 13 out of 100 may still be on opioids. And if you give them a one-month supply, then you're looking at 30 out of 100 patients may still be on opioids. They are highly addictive medications, much more so than we were taught in our clinical practice of experience-based medicine being taught to us by fellows and residents. And But, you know, the most important thing as we move into what I, I want to talk about next, which is the, you know, the Rothman Opioid Foundation that you have established and started and are a board member for, is that you're going to, we're going to have science now. We're going to have evidence-based research to prove that what we can do can really help patients. Because I think it's the most amazing, you know, macro thing that we've done in clinical practice over 25 years is changing the paradigm of post-op pain management, where we can safely and effectively take patients through what are really otherwise painful operations and avoid opioids for many times altogether. So it's really remarkable. So tell us your mission at the Opioid Foundation, Rothman, and, and where you guys are going. I love your posts on LinkedIn and all of the, what you're doing, but but tell us how, you, how you're going to make a difference with the, with the foundation. No, thanks for asking, Scott. Uh, so the Rothman Opioid Foundation is a 501c3, so it's an entirely um, um, uh, nonprofit tax-deductible organization that has uh, a three-part mission. First is education, second is research, third is advocacy. So first, in terms of education, it is educating both patients and prescribers or the public and prescribers 
on safe opioid consumption and prescribing, respectively. Two is on research uh, focused around opioid sparing and opioid alternative uh, uh, pain management strategies. And thirdly, around advocacy. So advising our policymakers and legislators on evidence-based opioid and pain management strategies, strategies that make sense uh, for the public and not overly just bureaucratic to be bureaucratic, but those policies that ultimately uh, make sense. And if I could just say one thing, it's important whenever we're talking about this space, there's a couple things to mention. One is, um, and I know you feel this way too, Scott, it's like we can't do the work that we're doing without opioids. So we're not opioid haters. It's all about uh, um, being respectful of the of the power uh, of the, of opioids and to use them in a safe way, harness them safely and prevent the harm that can readily uh, occur uh, from them. And then secondly, from a foundation perspective, if you look at the opioid crisis in America, uh, and by the way, it's, it's more so America than any other parts of the world. There's other parts, uh, and, and interesting, mostly the, the developed parts of the world are dealing with this, but America by far and away is, is suffering from it uh, the most, is there's two sides of this. Uh, and as orthopods, we, we always need to really simplify things so we understand things better. We've got to dumb it down a bit. So there's two sides to this. One is treatment, one's prevention. And what we're doing is on the prevention side, where we're trying to develop strategies that Patients don't even need to use or minimize it, its use. And then there's a, the treatment side where our partners on the addiction medicine, psychiatry, uh, psychology side, pharmacology side are working on as well. Yeah, that's brilliant. So really, thank you for taking the time to explain that uh, to our listeners. And I want to be clear on the record, too. I, I am not against opioids. I'm just against opioid addiction. And so what we need to try and do as as you know purveyors of pain <laughs> with surgeries try to prevent that so for for those on the record that you know there's some opioid zealots out there that claim that uh, uh, patient, people like ourselves are against all opioids that is not the case pa patients that are on chronic opioids for cancer and other reasons uh, that have chronic pain issues they need to be treated appropriately they demand respect uh, and we want that to happen so you know really thank you so much for for clarifying that and then putting that on the record now if i'm not mistaken over your left hand shoulder, I think I see you shaking President Biden's hand. So we gotta we gotta show you a little love on that. So you were you were, when President Biden was, I guess, in the pre-elect mode. You were on his healthcare policy for opioids. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was really a neat experience. Um, so uh, then, former Vice President Biden and presidential candidate Joe Biden, uh, has, he has ties to the Rothman Institute. He's been a patient and, and friends of and friends within the, the practice. And uh, I was able to, uh, I was ultimately introduced to him and asked to join his health policy committee, which is a pretty impressive group of people across the country tackling all sorts of issues. I mean, name it uh, from a health policy perspective, they were working on it. And ultimately what he needed was basically a portfolio of how to manage, you know, hot button items uh, so that if he were to become president, uh, that he would have a portfolio to put forth uh, and to implement. Interestingly, when we, I got started with him, his his campaign wasn't looking too good. This was back in like after Iowa and what have you. So <laughs> things things worked out quite well for 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 now President Biden. But for me, it was really a great opportunity to to um, having had some policy experience, having had some state legislative experience, working with folks on a federal level um, to kind of see how they. Uh, deal with the problem. And so what we were doing on his committee 
and we were on the opioid subcommittee specifically, was to see how to get the different agencies to communicate in an effective, streamlined manner. So if you can imagine, at the federal level, there's different organizations who have their space in the opioid abuse addiction uh, disseminations, uh, um, you know, space. So you have CDC, you have DEA, you have FBI, you have uh, DHS, lots, it's like alphabet soup, all these organizations, uh, ONDCP, uh, all these folks. So for me, it was a bit of an education to learn about those and then how to make them communicate. And our strategy was that the ONDCP, which is the office that sits within um the, the executive branch would serve as quarterback on this issue and then to establish surveillance systems where uh, uh, PDMP trends would trigger, you know, certain responses. Uh, PDMP being the prescription drug monitoring programs that are across the various states of the country. So uh, very much an education. I think I learned more than I offered, frankly, but it was great. It was a great experience. Yeah, it sounds like big government, lots of things moving around. I'm glad you've decided to stay at at, uh, at Rothman and continue healthcare and your opioid uh, uh, sparing approach rather than going to DC. I'm not sure if you're going to be offered a job, but at least you're. We need you up in the front lines with us, doing what you're doing and getting that research done. So we got a few more minutes, and I want to talk about one other thing that you seem to have uh, developed some passion for as well, which is a growing thing that we're starting to see across uh, across the world, and that's wide awake local anesthesia, no tourniquet uh, for patients that are having uh, upper extremity surgical intervention. So for the audience, what this means is you're not having general anesthesia, you're going to have local anesthetic, and, uh, and then the doctor's going to do surgery on you. So put it put into words for, for the listeners and for the patient, if they walk into your office and you're going to you know, think about doing this type of procedure. Yeah, so the acronym for what you're referring to is, is WALANT, uh, Wide Awake Local Anesthesia, No Tourniquet. So uh, in hand surgery, there's a lot of things that we, we do currently um, that is usually done under uh, local, what we call local with sedation. Where what that means is the surgical side is infiltrated with a local anesthetic, and then you're sedated through an anesthetic agent through an IV. You're not intubated or anesthetized in, in, with what we call general anesthesia. And the advantage of that is it's less anesthesia, it's a little bit quicker, et cetera. Well, the concept of Wallant is you can still do basically, you know, a large percentage of the basic hand surgery procedures that we, we do as hand surgeons without the, the anesthetic, just, this, just simply the local anesthetic. Um, and the way that we do this is we, we is based on the injections uh, technique. So we inject in a manner that hurts less because that's often one of the reasons why we use anesthesia. We also use epinephrine in the injection so that uh, it doesn't bleed as much, so you don't need a tourniquet, which is also another reason why we use anesthesia otherwise. Um, and uh, so, so based on the comment, the, the technique of injecting and how you're injecting and what you're injecting with foregoes the need to be anesthetized. So you're basically completely awake doing a procedure in a straight local. And a lot of the really basic high-volume hand surgeries that we do carpal tunnel, trigger fingers, decrevenge release, ganglion excisions, mass excisions, uh, any flexor tendon, extensor tendon surgery, we can do them completely awake. So what that does for the patient is, um, so firstly, it's it's safer for they don't have anesthesia. And I'm not trying to say that, Scott, you and I both know anesthesia is not unsafe, but it's safer from the, the minor complications, the, the nausea, the vomiting, the constipation, the lightheadedness, you know, et cetera, the drowsiness that can linger for a while. You, you save the cost of preoperative testing, so we don't do any preoperative testing. 
okay, uh, which is a, a big cost. Uh, you don't have to take time off from work for preoperative testing. You don't need to take time off from work to recover that day and next day. A family member doesn't have to take time off to, to come with you and take you home. You can go in and go home by yourself. Uh, there's cost savings because you're not paying for all the anesthesia services. No offense to our anesthesiologist friends, but we're not paying for their services. They're not paying for blood work. They're not paying for consultant clearances. So there's a convenience, there's a safety, and there's a cost advantage to doing this. And, you know, I, I, my residents and fellows routinely say to me uh, that it's shocking that more people don't do this because it's it's so easy. And I say the same thing. I, I say, I know it's it's one of those things that's like Uber. Once you start doing it, it should become really obvious. Um, but it, it's it's catching on. And to be fair, it's nothing that we in America have have. Um, uh, um, you know, deserve that much credit for really our our our, our peers across uh, across the world who have done this, uh, led this charge more so than us. Because around the world, as you know, they have less uh, anesthesiology resources as we do. We can readily get into the OR and do stuff, but they often can't. So this is an alternative to doing the work without the anesthesiologist help. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I watch videos from Ali Phillips and Amir Ahmad. I mean, that dude's like. He's like plating, you know, I think the patient, I think Amir actually uses the patient's other hand to assist during the <laughs> operation on the, on the right on the side he's operating on. I mean, that dude's doing some crazy stuff, but no, it, it really is amazing that how much you can do. And you're right in the, in the U S we've got so many things that we utilize, but yet healthcare resources may not be as, as readily available, you know, elsewhere. And so they came up with these ideas and kudos to you for, for following along in that, reducing the risk uh, of things and, and having safety at mind for our patients and, and having most importantly, you know, good outcomes. So, you know, great stuff. Really appreciate it. But, you know, once again, guys, everybody that's listening, this is another amazing story of a very unique orthopedic surgeon who has taken his own path uh, to, to do really amazing stuff. And that's what we do here at the Ortho Show. We bring you the best of the best. And, and you know, I, I, got, I have to say, Dr. Elias, you are the best of the best. We appreciate you so much for the hard work that you're doing within the opioid space and providing you know, education for fellows and residents and, and really moving the needle for us. So really, thank you so much for taking your time. Scott, it's absolutely my pleasure. You're doing a great job. And, you know, the orthopedic community in general, I think, as you know, um, has some amazing folks in it and uh, to, to highlight their work and, and, to, and to propel their work. You know, you deserve a lot of credit for that as well. Thank you. Thanks, man. Really appreciate you so much. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund host of The Ortho Show, hashtag follow the fro. Till next time.